What's up, everyone? Justin Laidlaw here, back with another episode of The Buddy Ruski Show. This is episode 14. 14, I can't believe it. 14 was my lucky number growing up, so this is bound to be uh, a solid episode for you all. I hope you're staying safe uh, and sane during quarantine. Obviously, this thing is going on indefinitely. I know we've had a lot of recent spikes, including here in North Carolina in COVID cases and the additional turmoil throughout the country caused by the deaths of too many black Americans um, at the hands of police, at the hands of racists, frankly. Uh, It's really troubling and, you know, it, it, it makes it hard to really think about anything else. And I think that's kind of the point right now. So uh, as much as I love bringing these shows to you all and having these great conversations, uh, I am reminded constantly of the work that we have to do to change this country for the better going forward and not allow us to return to normal, so to speak. That phrase has gone around a lot, return to normal. And I don't know that the normal that we had is appropriate. So we need to find a new normal uh, to push for and continue to do that. Don't don't let up. Uh, But in the meantime, I do really hope that you enjoy this conversation with my guest, Bernard Worthy. He is a UNC grad, uh, an entrepreneur, his company is Loanwell. It's a finance tech company based here in Durham. Bernard and I have known each other for quite some time, working out of the American Underground together on various projects, playing ball together. Bernard has been a member of the infamous Killer Bees YMCA team here in Durham that I spearheaded. So uh, he and I have gotten to know each other quite a bit uh, in the last few years, and he is recently a new father as well has a not even one year old i think he's said six months eight months so uh so he's had his hands full during quarantine uh but he was gracious enough to spend some time with me and share more about his background and uh, his upbringing in atlanta right outside of atlanta uh getting to the triangle area and uh and having that entrepreneurial spirit that drives a lot of us i think he has Uh, plenty to offer in terms of his story and what his journey as an entrepreneur has been like. So without further ado, let me introduce Bernard Worthy. Bernard Worthy, you're on the Buddy Ruski Show. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, man. Really looking forward to this. It's been a while since we've uh, we've been in the same room as each other, obviously with COVID and not having basketball, which has been a real uh, the real bane of my quarantine existence. Man, we can we can talk this whole podcast about how much I miss basketball. That <laughs> that should probably be the whole conversation right there. I was literally I was talking to my wife Lauren about like how much I realized basketball is such a big part of my life. And it's always been that way. It's always been since I was four or five and like, you know, throwing up hundreds of shots, you know, in the backyard to like playing in different countries and barefoot. And it's always been a big, a huge part of my story, but it's not been until COVID-19 that I realized like 
how much my body just like yearns for it and just how much my personality like needs it. Like I, I like become this other person on the court. That's like this good outlet for me that, that you probably know quite well. Uh, so yeah, man, no, we could, we could talk about basketball the whole time. Yeah. I, I'm the same way. I think that that's, uh, a common thread actually between a lot of the folks that we play with at the cage and, uh, you know, through the YMCA, it's just like, it's a great outlet. It's good exercise. It's a good way to, uh, build camaraderie amongst, uh, your community. And so I, I'm really looking forward to, I think whenever this is done, that'll be the first thing that will really signal some semblance of being back to normal is is playing basketball together so totally man my the the thing that i look forward to the most literally every day and i tell my whole team this is like stopping at six o'clock and like taking a walk with my daughter around the neighborhood and it's just one of those like one of those things of just being outside and lauren was like i didn't know you wanted to be outside so much and and i realized that's what playing at the cage playing down uh, at atc does for me that i didn't fully appreciate so yeah and i should say happy belated father's day as well this is your first one correct first one man with with the newborn and and it it, uh it was one to remember she's so she is six and a half months old which is just crazy to even say that she is the biggest cheese ball you've ever seen in your life she smiles every five seconds and probably because her mom and i are smiling at her the whole time and she's just such a cool uh, blend of the two of us. And uh, Father's Day, uh, we we just we were outside a ton and, and hanging out. So it was a uh, it was a lot of fun. Got showered with gifts. The gifts turned into gifts for her. So that was a that was a big change. I realized like my birthday and uh, things that are for dads aren't really for dads. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a that's a new realization, but uh, a welcome one. Uh, so yeah. Cool. Well, so to give some context, Bernard and I, uh, I guess we've probably known each other for five years or so now. Bernard has worked out of the American Underground, where a lot of you know our office for Runaway uh, was for for some time. Uh, Bernard had his own business and then worked at Crosscom for a few years until recently founding Loanwell, uh, which is a fintech company again, based here in Durham, in the American underground. Uh, But unlike many of my guests, Bernard is not a Durhamite. Bernard hails from uh, the big city down in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, What, tell me a little bit about what that experience is like uh, growing up in a city like Atlanta. um, You know, there's so much to offer down there. It's, it's got the um, you know, big business, it's got Hollywood, it's got sports, uh, you name it. So what, how did that experience growing up in Atlanta, uh, sort of shape your, the direction you took? Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I, I have to be honest to my, uh, to my roots. We, we grew up in Marietta, which is just 20 minutes Northwest. If anybody is from Atlanta, they'll, they'll say, where, where are you really? That, like when you say you're from Atlanta, it's like, where are you really from? People claim Atlanta and they're an hour outside of the city. Um, we grew up about 20 minutes northwest in a little town called Marietta. It was a civil rights, uh, you know, stop. It was a very, like, Sherman's march to burn Atlanta. Uh, he came through Marietta. And a lot of those uh, uh, symbols and history still exist uh, in Marietta and is 
for lack of better words, still heralded in a lot of ways. And I think that uh, more than anything kind of shaped our upbringing in Marietta. I grew up five minutes from downtown and downtown was like kind of split in half by train tracks that separated kind of black community and white community. And, uh, you know, you hung out with your black friends, you went to church with your black friends, and then you went to school and you, you saw your white friends and you might get an invite to a, to a birthday or something like that. And, um, and it was a pretty separate existence until, you know, like middle school, high school, you started sharing more sports and, and different things started opening up your world. Um, but it was a very, uh, I, I do think it was a relatively segregated upbringing. Um, with where we grew up and the city itself uh, now it's, you know, and, and maybe back then, I, I don't know what the numbers were, but it's known for kind of its uh, burgeoning population of, you know, uh, black professionals. And uh, it's the place to be if you're African-American looking to start a business and, and all of these things. And you certainly, you know, felt that, or at least I did, uh, growing up, but it has just ballooned and blossomed into its very own thing. And, you know, it's the, the black Silicon Valley now, and uh, there's just so much happening there. It's a, uh, it's beautiful uh, to see. So a lot of people that go visit Atlanta, they're like, Oh, tell me what it's like. And I'm like, I left when I was 18. And so I don't really know the Atlanta that is now, uh, which is uh, a weird place to be in kind of your, um, uh, how you, how you try to, distill down your um your your roots and your upbringing and what that it feels very separate than what the city is now um but i think when i was there uh it was a constant battle to really get out uh, if if i can say that i mean it was a lot of my friends got stuck there and so much of my upbringing was uh uh more or less trying to figure out ways to make it out. Um, if that was academics or if that was athletics or whatever that was, it was, you know, how do I, um, how do I make something of myself with the, uh, with the roots that we were given? So grew up hum humble family, but never wanted for anything. Uh, but I was pushed from an early age and it was very, uh, my parents were very performance driven. I became very performance driven. And that's certainly a huge part of my character, but also a big part of, uh, you know, why I was able to come to North Carolina on scholarship at UNC. So uh, upbringing was like huge family, black church family. So, you know, you got all the parties and food and hangouts that you could ever want. Um, and my family is such a big part of uh, of me and my story and um, it's a shame we're not closer to them now but um, I think it would be it would be hard to be uh, have your own life and be a part of uh, what that community is so uh, I think it's probably healthy for a little bit of separation but uh, beautiful story and and not everybody has that uh, a lot of broken families um, in all walks and ethnicities and uh, that wasn't my story. So very thankful for a really strong nuclear unit and, and frankly, really happy and thankful for strong black men in my family to kind of like show me the way um, and what it meant to be um, 
what it meant to be a black man that could be respected and uh, looked up to in the community. So something I always looked up to and wanted to kind of chart my own course in that vein uh, when I got the opportunity. Yeah, the what you talked about um, in terms of trying to get out of your hometown, I think that there's a lot of parallels between where Durham was and where it is now. Uh, you know, I think if folks, well, I could say almost for certain people that I graduated with uh, in high school left when they were 18. And if they came back and visited even five years later, there's a completely different city. And granted, you know, the parts of downtown that have developed were not places that we necessarily hung out uh, when I was younger, but even still, I think it's just, it's a significantly different uh, place, um, but but also a great place to have grown up. And, and like you, I'm very fortunate to have had uh, strong role models in my community. And that really helped, you know, steer the ship a little bit for me growing up here in Durham. Do you, do you find yourself, uh, I'm, I'm gonna ask you a question. Do you find yourself like at odds with the new Durham or do you find yourself as like this bridge ambassador? Like you knew it before what it, what it is now. Like what's, like how do you see your role uh, in this kind of new age Durham? Yeah, I like how you flip this on me. It's not as if people <laughs> don't hear from me enough. Um, no, I do think it's a little bit of both. So I talked to Jay Gunn, Joshua Gunn, uh, a couple of days ago, and, um, you know, he's getting ready to start a new chapter in his life, uh, working for the chamber in Illinois. And, you know, we, we were sort of, uh, reminiscing about times in Durham and he used the word fatigue. And I think there, you know, in the beginning, when I first started with Runaway and at American Underground, when there was this excitement because there was a lot of possibility with what could happen to Durham mm -hmm. and to downtown. And so that excitement really put wind in our sails when we thought about our place in that conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. Mo Molly Dimrist, who you and I both know, is also a Durhamite. And we would have this conversation on the regular about mm -hmm. being lucky to have a voice in the direction of the city but over time i think that that uh that privilege the responsibility of it also started to weigh on us and so it's a you know it's a double-edged sword in some ways yeah. because yeah. you you know you have this voice and you have a lot of opportunities because of it but you also i think feel the full weight of um, of both sides. And so when things mm -hmm. don't succeed, uh, or don't go the way that you hoped they would, you take it personally a little bit more than maybe the average person would. Sure. Uh, and so I sure. think, yeah, that's been a, a challenge to find balance between being hopeful and being proud of what has happened. Uh, and then being at peace with things that maybe didn't go the way that you yeah. wanted them to. And I think that's just life in general, but it's interesting when you take on the identity of a city like Durham, and I'm sure a lot of people, uh, you know, feel the same way about Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, I was actually going to make that parallel. I feel, feel like Atlanta has, and, uh, you know, uh, probably a company in general, like there's a parallel of 
um, who the founders are, who those like image bearers are, and then uh, equipping kind of the next wave. And it feels like Durham's just small enough to not be able to equip the next wave. Like you got to, you got the same people kind of doing the same stuff. And I think that's more of a factor of our size of the city than it is anything. Um, certainly not interest by a lot of people, but uh, I feel like with Atlanta, it's such a big place that, you know, no one can possibly think that uh, who was kind of running the city in the nineties or the two thousands are going to be running it in the, in the 2010s and beyond. And I think what I've seen is, you know, um, really cool new image bearers and new culture makers uh, kind of uh, taking the mantle of Atlanta and black Atlanta specifically and even more specifically like black startup atlanta and like making it this thing that um frankly like when you're there like it's um it's not as palpable as it seems like on twitter <laughs> um but but they've like created this brand that i think is just amazing and just really cool to see that i would love for you know durham to kind of following the footsteps of, uh, in its right timing, right? I mean, you can, um, you can, you know, want and hope all day long and, and you're given what you're given um, uh, to work with. Uh, but I think Atlanta's just uh, created this really cool, um, unapologetic, we're black for black sake and we're all about uh, black people. Um, and if you want to be a part of that, come join what we're doing. Uh, there's not much to change. Uh, we're, we're creating and, and making the change, uh, come support what we, what we have in place. So, um, certainly, certainly not trying to gush on Atlanta, but I think there's some cool, cool stuff happening there. That, That's what uh, you're here for, man. That's your hometown. You can gush on them yeah, all you want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people say, would you ever, would you ever move back? And, um, yeah, if it weren't for the traffic, <laughs> which is a whole nother, whole nother story. But yeah, man, love, love the city, love what's happening right now. Were most people uh, trying to get out of Atlanta when you were growing up? Was that kind of the mindset is that there were no opportunities where you were until you had to break out? Or was it just a matter of being around a lot of ambitious, successful people who had options and they you know, took those options wherever, wherever they went? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, my, my, you know, I grew up two blocks from the projects. Uh, it was, you know, uh, probably a similar story for lots of African-American young men, you know, um, uh, your, your drug dealers on the bus, you, you know, friend one day, is in class for the next day he's killed. I mean, a lot of that stuff just becomes so um, commonplace and you just become normalized to like gunshots at night. I said that I said this uh, one time uh, to some of my white friends, I was like, yeah, uh, why is, why does Durham get such a bad rap? Like, and they're like, Oh, but like the gunshots. And so don't you hear gunshots around West village? And I'm like, yeah. And, and they're like, that's not normal. But I mean, like it was normal to me, you know what I mean? Uh, an inner city, that is normal. That is just what the, that, I mean, but that was my normal. It might not be normal. Um, I mean, that was normal so, for Durham 10 years ago, I think. Right. You know, maybe right. a little bit more, but it's funny. Like, that's kind of how you can tell 
who yeah. existed in which yes. eras of a city. Absolutely. And and I it sounds like Atlanta is very similar. Absolutely. And and like my little pocket in Marietta um has, you know, had this renaissance like Durham where they're selling four hundred thousand dollar condos downtown and all this other kind of stuff. Um and it just wasn't the case. I mean it they had to literally wipe out five huge, you know, um uh, government housing, you know, uh, neighborhoods that I grew up in playing basketball in every other day. Um, they wiped those out to put these condos up, right? And so this kind of um, this like resettlement, this uh, this under the guise of like economic development, maybe not guys. I mean, certainly it changed uh, the economic power of my little city by bringing in more higher income earning you know citizens but um at the expense of like giving people vouchers right and so there's this this parallel story between that i find like having grown up in marietta um just outside of atlanta and now living in durham this parallel story story of what happened to Haiti. um this just kind of uh uh kind of yeah just like this construction project era of the 60s 70s that displaced so many and and, be, and before potentially um that displaced so many black families and communities and you know the story of Haiti is that there's a this thriving black uh community and business like focal point for the whole country um that was completely ripped apart and, you know, not unlike uh, that, you know, in Marietta, that's why those train tracks exist, right? And so I've had this kind of common thread in the Southern cities that I've lived in and that I've set roots down in um, that I think in a unconscious way kind of drives the types of friend groups and conversations and uh, influence that I want to have on a place. And I think uh, Lonewell is this really beautiful manifestation of what is, um, you know, my upbringing and my and my hope and my like passion, but also kind of this drive to this drive for excellence to show black excellence in in places and circles where that's not as prevalent um, and to be a I don't want this to sound like uh, like overly um, like mentory, right? But to be like this um, alternative visual in a in a startup space, in a tech space, and raising money from white people, raising money from groups that typically don't see faces like mine in the boardroom, such that when I go and talk to uh, other young black men and women, or you know minorities that that they they feel some sense of like um possibility I, I think that was all i needed as a young kid was like possibility so you mean to tell me if i am hooked on phonics when i'm four that i can get into that accelerated class cool i'm into it so you mean to tell me if i'm in that accelerated class and i can be in an ib program when i'm in high school cool so if i'm in an ib program and i graduate top of my class, you tell me I get a free ride to college, cool, I'm in. And I think that like common thread of like what is possible with, granted, you have to be supported and you have to have the resources and you have to have the people around you. So that is 
nothing to to um, neglect. But with that light at the end of the tunnel, you know, I'd, I'd want to be that for uh, as many people as I could. Do your folks still live in your childhood home in Marietta? They do. They do. Yeah. That's yeah. dope. I, so, I, that's cool. Not, not everyone can, you know, for better or worse, um, I think particularly in black families, you know, holding on to those, having that sense of ownership, I think is really important. So that's, that's dope that they're still there. No, I think, I mean, that, that's probably such a good microcosm of like what my upbringing was. They sacrificed so much for me. Um, and, uh, like I said earlier, like I, I never wanted for anything. And so they were just this steady, uh, supportive uh christian family that i could always lean on and, and draw inspiration from and um and ownership was a big part of that uh for sure and having roots never having to move is a big part of uh you know that sense of possibility and groundedness that you can have um from ownership and yeah i mean that's you know, Lonewell is a loan origination platform, but really what we're trying to do is like, how do we create that same sense of wealth, you know, creation and ownership and longstanding, sustainable, passed down, uh, you know, wealth from generation to generation that maybe starts with a small business that then is passed through kind of your, you know, your, your personal financials that's then passed to your family that's then passed to the next generation such that that type of stability and uh, family unit is, uh, is something that everybody just is completely accustomed to. That's not, that's not an anomaly, you know? So you mentioned uh, graduating from UNC. Had you had your eyes set on Carolina for a while or was that, were you thinking maybe in-state? Uh, yeah, how was that college uh, selection process and what drew you to to want to go to unc yeah um i applied to four very different schools uh upenn emory so uh in in atlanta um unc and then university um of washington st louis uh so um definitely very very different schools and different sizes and different vibes uh i was very into business wanted to for sure go to business school so those all had very good business programs um ultimately unc just felt right uh, i was fortunate enough to get a scholarship uh, so i was very thankful for that and didn't want to waste the opportunity uh, but it also just felt right you know um coming here and meeting the people there's just this uh, cool um, just this care for the world and almost every student that you meet from UNC that is, I think, pretty unique that um, there's this uh, extra gear that everybody was their class president, you know, or whatever that it is. And so everybody's like really motivated or driven. Um, and it's just a, it's a world-class education. Uh, on top of that, the entrepreneurship program was really growing when I was uh, looking for schools and, I knew that I wasn't going to be the kind of cookie cookie cutter, like corporate America type business graduate. So I was very interested in everything that they were um, starting to pilot uh, around the entrepreneurship side of the business school. So I don't even think I knew the word entrepreneurship until like 2012. <laughs> it was such a new concept to me. Totally, and, man. Uh, you know, I wonder about that with, 
some of, uh, you know, in the news right now, there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, what's lacking in education around race and history. But I think also entrepreneurship is a, you know, a gateway for a lot of people, um, especially for maybe folks who are less privileged growing up to their own destiny. And mm-hmm. so it's it's nice to hear that at least in some places, like the idea of entrepreneurship was not so um, mysterious and that there were opportunities for people to really dig their teeth into that mindset and have an outlet for it and go to college for it and really begin to build yeah, build their own foundation as opposed to what you were saying about, you know, being yeah. in a, being in corporate America and sort of just falling in line because, you know, unfortunately we've seen time and time again, that especially for minorities, there's no, there's no ladder to climb in corporate America for, for a lot of folks. And so mm-hmm. the, one of the few ways to actually build that wealth that you talked about and be able to pass something down uh, to your kids and to their kids is, is through your own, you know, through your own hard work. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, and and don't get me wrong. There's lots of ways to be an entrepreneur where you're you're charting your own path at a company that's established. Like everybody has their own like risk tolerance, but um, I do think there's something unique about exposing our youth to um, kind of create their own path and it doesn't always have to be risky. Uh, like there's a misconception that entrepreneurship is risky. Um, I think that entrepreneurs are some of the more risk averse people that you'll meet, at least the ones that are still in business, um, because you're constantly balancing, you know, uh, the fires at hand and you're trying to figure out, um, how to keep the thing afloat. Uh, and so I, I think entrepreneurs are some of the best problem solvers, but also some of the more risk averse people. That's just a, one of those things that gets uh, that Silicon Valley like weighs on uh, the whole industry in a way that I don't think is all that accurate. Um, and I think you can chart your own course in a very um, conservative way uh, and in a way that gives you a lot, a lot more flexibility and maneuverability in your career and skill set and what you're learning and all these other things. It um, doesn't compromise on kind of long-term, you know, gains or opportunities in any way. What were some of the specific things that you learned uh, during your time at UNC that you feel like really helped chart your course for the work that you do now? Yeah. Um, I have to give a shout out to uh, Patrick Vernon. Uh, I was by far my, my favorite professor at UNC. Um, entrepreneurs, I had him for several classes, but um, um, I, you know, he was all about the experiential learning model. And I think that's just something that, like I, I learned how to learn. I, it wasn't like there's this one particular takeaway that I'm like, oh man, so glad I learned financial modeling because I use that every day. It's, it's really more like being exposed to actually doing it or trying it or talking to small businesses and interviewing them and um, doing case competitions and uh, consulting for local Franklin Street businesses. That was one of our classes where you get paired up with a small business. They like run through their financials with you. 
Um, and you as the like upstart young 20 year old who thinks they know what they can, you know, know what they're doing, you get an opportunity to consult with a business. And sometimes it's helpful. Most times it's not, but it's like one of those it's, and we've been asked to be a part of these same groups. So it's just cool to be on the other, other end of it and uh, receiving that presentation that I knew that I crushed. That was, uh, was probably not all that helpful at all. Uh, when I was actually in, not in, you're saying not helpful shoes. to the business, to the business, to right. the business. Yeah. But it certainly um, must be helpful to the students. No, I mean extremely helpful to the students. Sometimes it is helpful to the business for sure. Yeah. Let me let me just be clear about that. But no, I mean it's it's that type of learning and that type of process that uh, just got my juices flowing for like what what my long-term career could look like. I always knew I wanted to run. I'm a third generation entrepreneur. You know, my dad owned a business. His, his dad owns a concrete business that's still in our family. Um, so we, you know, we have scars for all the grinding that we've been doing for a long time. Um, and I always knew that that was kind of what I wanted to be doing. And But to be exposed to it in a way that, uh, particularly in technology, that the work that you do is uh, more scalable than the concrete that you can lay that particular day um, was a pretty eye-opening experience for me. And that's where I think the, you know, where I would like to take up a mantle where, you know, technology is something that um, my, my dad always says, uh, or, or always said, um, wealth is when your money is working for you at night when you're asleep. And, um, and you don't have to clock in for that paycheck to come in. And I just think that's such a easy uh, way to think through that uh, and, and to grasp that concept. Like, are you doing things that work without you toiling? Um, and I think that's something I was exposed to for the first time at UNC in some really cool ways and something that uh, I'll certainly always carry with me. But some of that other experiential learning was actually doing it. So starting student businesses, I don't know how many t-shirts and mock-up drawings and all these other things that I have for business ideas um, that I had. And, and it's just one of those things that if you don't do it, you'll never, uh, you're never going to like hit the idea the very first time. Uh, the, the process is a refinement um, and you're always refining as you go through. So what was your first business? Did you start it in oh, college? Man. Was it coming right out of college? I guess, how did you, did that first business, uh, was that the thing that brought you to Durham? Uh, I mean, my first business was when I was 10. Uh, <laughs> so uh, my first business was door-to-door sales. I was selling electromagnets. <laughs> I had learned how to build them in science class. And I was selling them to the people on my street over all of like five households. And I sold three and I felt very accomplished. That's a uh, good percentage. Yeah, it's not too bad, huh? Like three out of five close rate. They probably felt bad for me, but uh, I felt pretty good about it. I was selling for five bucks. If you so, could scale uh, that, you'd be making some <laughs> real money. That's what I'm saying, man. Everybody needs a good, uh, needs something that can pick up a paper clip with a battery attached to it. So um, that was the first business, but. No, I mean, I, I think uh, the the work at UNC, um, none of it materialized in a way that I was like, oh, I'm ready to leave school early or graduate and immediately start a business. And I think that's a big part of my story, actually, the fact that I didn't have an idea right away. Um, Patrick Vernon, I'll, I'll reference him again. 
I sat down in his office and said, Patrick, you know how much I love entrepreneurship. Like, what should I do? I don't have an idea right now and I need to make money. I need to get a job after graduating. What'd you recommend? And he said, well, if you're ever going to run your own business, you're going to have to manage people. So go learn, go learn how to manage people. Uh, and, and you'll, you'll over time find the idea and find the industry and, and the technology, but the intangibles of learning how to like empathize and motivate and inspire and, and um, get people around you that are smarter than you is something that um, you can't really learn on the fly uh, that, or, or you shouldn't. Um, if you can be trained uh, to do that piece, then that's something that, that you'll never regret. Um, so I did that. I, I went to work at Macy's uh, in their executive development program and I was managing, get this, women's shoes. And, uh, and it was one of these like, thrown into the fire moments. I'm 21. I'm managing, you know, $4 million of business uh, in terms of annual sales across several different departments at this Macy's store. Never had worked in retail before, never even thought about retail. Uh, but I realized that the job was distilled down to how do you inspire? Like, how do you work with people? How do you uh, build trust uh, amongst uh, folks? How do you build trust for yourself? Uh, how do you manage somebody that's twice as old as you. Um, how do you manage commission sales? Cause that is a beast. Um, so it was a, it was an amazing experience to like learn how to empathize and to learn how to, um, uh, gather folks around you, uh, to, to move towards a common goal. And, um, it was, was my first stop. No, it was in Raleigh. Uh, so I graduated okay. Carolina and then started this role in Raleigh. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll never, it was the best, best first job I could have right out of college. So did you ever make it back to Atlanta or once you got up into the triangle, you, you got your teeth synced in and then that was it? Yeah, it's tough, man. My mom always says, I could see it in your eyes that you weren't going to come back. Uh, the reality is I met my now wife and so we were going to be here. Um, you, but, all, you all met at UNC? We did. We met freshman year. She uh, told me no for three years, and uh, and then we finally we finally started dating senior year. So, wow! Yeah, you are man, you are persistent. Yeah, persistent, dude. <laughs> I won't tell the full full story. <laughs> we'll we'll save that for the uh, for the bonus yeah. part. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the good. other end. Um, so you so eventually you, you get to Durham. Uh, American Underground is open around sort of like the start of the decade. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, sort of very early concept. I wasn't too familiar with it. Um, again, you know, having just learned the word entrepreneurship, um, I knew, you know, when they had the partnership with Google, like I knew what Google was. So that, you know, that kind of opened my eyes. I was like, okay, something must be going on here if Google is interested in it. Um, yeah. What is it? How did you? sort of find out about the entrepreneurship opportunities in Durham and how much of the Durham entrepreneurship story did you know uh, before coming here? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, I landed in Durham uh, in 2013. Um, so as you said, kind of turn of the decade, um, you know, startup stampede was going on. American Underground was starting to get its, you know, get its roots. We're, we had some 
big companies starting to make waves like your Windsor circles of the world were, were starting to pop up and, and make a, a cool name, Bronto, uh, make a, make a name for the region. Um, and I'd certainly heard of them, but Durham was still just a small, uh, kind of a small opportunity, uh, to me in my, in my mind. And it was really Brooklyn or Durham, uh, was kind of the next stop, um, after leaving Miami. So Macy's detour down to Miami in, in corporate realized I didn't want to be in corporate kind of knew that, but needed to scratch the itch. Um, uh, and then moved, moved in 2013, but I didn't move for the startup scene. I moved to help plant a church, um, Christ Central Durham, um, uh, my campus pastor at UNC, Daniel Mason, kind of called me up one night and said, hey, man, I'm thinking about playing a church. I want you guys to be a part of it. Um, and so that was the decision, really, was to come here, be back in the triangle, which I loved, be a part of a church family that I had grown to love. Daniel married my wife and I, so it was something that felt very natural, and we'd follow him wherever wherever we needed to go. Um, but I loved New York. I loved the energy of the city. Um, I had been going there five times a year. Could see myself there. Um, and Were you going up there for business or family up there? Or Yeah, for business. Macy's has a bunch of headquarters up there. So I had been up there a lot. Um, and I had just grown to love it um, in, a, in, a, in a myriad of ways. But uh, we ended up choosing Durham, uh, mainly, mainly for the church, mainly for kind of this area where we wanted to settle long-term. New York was always going to be like a short-term thing. So, um, we, uh, we landed here and I, and I remember within the first couple weeks, uh, I got connected to Adam Klein and Molly. It was literally just two of them on the AU staff at the time. The main building hadn't even opened up yet. Uh, I was talking to them on the phone and they were in some spacious office, like trying to recruit me to come and be a part of this thing that hadn't even opened up yet. They were doing a launch party literally that week. Um, they're like, just come check it out. And I just felt this, uh, just this calling and pulling. And, um, Adam gave me a sweet deal to have an office with no business, with no agenda. And I took the summer of 2013 uh, to literally get introduced to Durham. Uh, I, I went down to BU and I had coffee, literally three meetings a day, four days a week with different people who would meet with me throughout Durham, just kind of getting to know what the scene was. Um, and that summer is, you know, a large part of my community now. Um, it was such a cool experience to um, to, to do it that way. Uh, and AU was right at the, the center of it all. So, uh, I, I owe a lot to AU for, for being here and I've been a part of the community for a long time. Who were some of the folks that you had those coffees with? Are there other entrepreneurs that people listening might, uh, might know? Gosh, yes. So many people. Um, I mean, folks from like the social impact space, like a, a Henry Kasener to my co-founder, Justin Strait of Lonewell. We met there at BU. Um, was he at Durham Cares at that point? He was at Durham Cares. Okay. Yeah. Um, gosh, I'm pretty sure I met Salim uh, that summer. Um, uh, Adam made several intros. I'll have to go back to my notes. That's a good question. I should, uh, I should go dig all that up and, and figure out who I met. But, um, 
really it was a it was a it was a broad swath and i fell in love with like the diversity of durham then uh not like uh uh how do i say this not just like diversity for for diversity's sake but just like it felt true it felt authentic like when i sat in bu people looked different and that felt very cool uh and something that i wanted to be a part of um and uh yeah it was awesome so when did that first business idea click so because you you had the office now in a in a startup incubator you had access to mentors and you know other business professionals so how does that all come together into your first venture and then sort of walk us through how that eventually leads to to Lonewell, the business you have now yeah man uh so right after that summer um i was so one of those folks that i met was john austin at uh, nc idea um and he said hey you should you should apply for this thing called groundwork labs it's this business incubator you'll go through this program you'll really vet whether or not your business has the legs and uh we'll either kick you out or we'll support you um and you know if you, if anybody knows john you appreciate his uh, brashness uh, his his <laughs> bluntness uh but also his genius um and i was just kind of under his tutelage for a little while um, that at the end of the year uh, where I was working on uh, my, my really I call it my first business uh, feed style which was um, really like a feed of news events and uh, kind of like food deals and different things for college campuses so this is kind of pre uh, Twitter categories and like threads and channels and whatnot and so this way for you to kind of get this uh, aggregation of news. And so it was a, uh, an idea that I had from my time at Macy's of being on college campuses and uh, kind of fit the bill for like, you feel the problem in corporate America and you leave corporate America to try to solve the thing. And I thought that was enough, right? I thought, oh, okay, cool. I finally fit this mold. Uh, this is all just going to work out. Um, and I realized very, very quickly, like, uh, entrepreneurs are just uh they're resilient but there's just so much and they're brilliant there's just so much that goes into a business working um there's timing there's product there's customer there's pricing there's there's market size there's funding there's team there's there's just so much that actually needs to all click at some point for a business to work um and it didn't for that first one, but I learned so much uh, going through the process and I learned to be vulnerable uh, in a way that I hadn't before. Um, and I was very vulnerable with, with Durham and my Durham community in those uh, early, uh, gosh, I guess that was 2014, uh, 2015 uh, years. Um, but it led me to, and I'll kind of, I'll, I'll catch the timeline up. It led me to Iron Yard, which was a coding boot camp. And I realized leaving Groundwork Labs that I wanted to be able to build the thing. Like I was hamstrung by uh, having vision but not being able to execute on it. Um, and I wanted to be able to build the thing. And I knew I wanted to be in, in technology that, you know, back to that story of like scalability being this big inspiration or influence for me. And uh, I went to learn to code and I thought, man, at worst I can just like, make some church websites or some nonprofit websites and make my money back. Um, but it became just a, 
a pure passion, man. And um, uh, it's it's what I love to do, and I've done it uh, probably too much over the last seven years, if you ask my wife. But uh, a lot of uh, a lot of product development and building uh, has gone into the last few years. So I left Iron Yard and I joined Crosscom, which is a consulting agency, uh, also at AU. Um, really fantastic people there. Don Shin, Sean Doherty, a lot of great people there. Um, Beverly, um, they really taught me how to kind of hone the like raw talent that I had built at Iron Yard um, and work with some big clients. So I worked with Forbes and Visa and a number of other folks um, building some cutting edge tech. So it was uh, my first kind of foray into technology, which then eventually led to Lone Law. And they, Crosscom has been around for some time. So they had, it wasn't like they were another young upstart company uh, that were trying to figure out things the same way that you were. They had uh, a wealth of experience over time as technology has changed and evolved. They have changed and evolved with it. And so I, I think that that's, and I'm sure that you can uh, speak to this, was a great landing spot to gain a lot of that historical knowledge on technology and startups and Durham and just a number of things. Totally, man. I, I don't know if I've ever told Don or Sean this, but I chose them over some other consultancies that I was like talking to because I said, if they've been around for 20 years, they've figured out a bunch of you know ups and downs and they've been able to ride those out and, and still succeed. And that's one, that's something that I want to learn how to do with my own business at some point. Um, but I also, uh, I want that for a stability thing and I want to be around, you know, folks that have a lot of experience. So I can, uh, just soak up as much as possible. And, um, and I did that for three years, literally just asked questions daily and took on all the extra projects that I could to continue to hone my craft. And my 10,000 hours came quickly, um, by, by midnight oil, mostly, um, but just really just found this drive uh, to, to build product, to build things that people use and touch and experience and, um, and, uh, and are influenced by. It's just something that I just care deeply about. Um, so uh, yeah, man, Crosscom was an amazing three years and I left on fantastic terms with them. They sent me off in an amazing way. Um, they're incredible people there. Um, they took me to South by Southwest as like a send off, uh, which was just an incredible thing. If I can, if I can gift my team in the same way, um, uh, I'd love to be able to do that. Uh, and that always stuck with me. Um, and, and is that, that kind of generosity towards your team is just, uh, it's cool stuff. So, um, yeah. I think that's, uh, uh, it speaks to the kind of community that has been built over time at AU as well. Cause I imagine that you can talk to a number of other employees from different businesses and they'll have similar stories to share about their own teams, about their company leadership, about yeah. the ecosystem, you know, about folks like John Austin, uh, who have really cultivated uh, a, a great space for learning, for experimentation, for trial and error, um, I, I, yes. you know, so many people have, you know, either like started businesses at AU and then that business maybe didn't pan out. And so 
those people end up going and just working for other companies in the AU. And then they break off with a couple other people and start a new business. You know, there's just such this like, yep. this, like chemistry mixture happening in AU. And, um, but I think a lot of it comes down to the people. I mean, it always does with teams, yep. you know, it always comes down to the type of people you put in the mix. And I think that AU has done a great job over the years of cultivating and recruiting those types of people. I couldn't agree more, man. And I, I've said this before uh, and I'll say it again. I mean, just that the ecosystem here is really unique. And I've been in a lot of places and a lot of different regions and a lot of cities. Um, the ecosystem here is just, um, it's built for this and it's built in a different way. And something that to be frank, I think we don't need to chase a Silicon Valley story. Um, if there's anything that's coming out of COVID, this like, um, uh, you know, this this uh, focus on revenue over like eyeballs or focus on uh, capital raised is something that should really bolster regions like the Triangle. I mean, we've always been focused on revenue. We've always been, you know, B2B businesses. Um, doing strategic partnerships and long, long-term deals. Like this should be our time to really kind of um, vault above the rest uh, in a way that could really cement this area for capital, for startups, for talent, for you name it. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. It's coming at this like economic downturn for sure. And, and this, this terrible, terrible, you know, public health pandemic, but um, I do think there's like a silver lining. I think that there's an opportunity for the startup scene because here you can be in an NC Idea Labs and have just a baseline idea. You can apply for a grant with NC Idea and get 10,000 bucks to get it going. You can then apply for their bigger grant and get 50K. That was our first money in was a NC Idea grant. I mean, that money let me quit my job at Crosscom and actually start OwnWell full time. I mean, that, that was literally how we got started. So we have been supported by every nook and cranny of this ecosystem. And I think you said it well, it starts with the people and there's such a diversity of thought and experience and culture um, as a part of this community. That, that is honestly beyond AU. That is I was really say, I'm glad Durham, you said that. that is uh, the Triangle, that is Raleigh, that is Chapel Hill, that is uh, into the Piedmont. You know, there, there's a lot of support I think for me, if, if I may just take one more minute on this, I think the next step for our region is, is we, we get hung up on capital. We get hung up on, um, you know, oh, we have all the talent in the world. You know, why uh, can't we, you know, uh, build more businesses and continue the pipeline or whatever it might be. Frankly, I just think we are suited for a different type of business, a different type of entrepreneur and different type of capital. And that's okay. I, I, I think we should be embracing things like alternative financing, like a revenue-based financing model, like a lighter capital type of thing. Um, I think we should be embracing these kind of corporate partnership type models. I think we should be embracing, um, you know, ways that we can do more non-dilutive capital. Like the, the reality is uh, we have less chances with the makeup of our region than a Silicon Valley or a Boston or a New York. And so if we can just hone in on giving more and more exposure 
to the groups that do show that interest and, and raise their hand and join AU or join NC Idea Labs or whatever it might be and continue to foster that pipeline. But knowing the restrictions that we do have and, and celebrating those things and, and not to be discounted, uh, I, I think we'd have uh, the pipeline that we all you know, really hope for. Um, and we created an alternative story uh, to what it looks like to create a startup ecosystem. But my two cents. Well, so give us the, I'm sure you've done it a million times now. Give us the elevator pitch for Lonewell and how does Lonewell fit into that conversation in yeah. the startup community here? Yeah, man. Uh, so Lonewell is an automated loan origination platform. And we're built for community lenders like community banks, credit unions, loan funds, and uh, uh, a government designation called CDFI. So Community Development Financial Institutions. So we work with people who make loans to people. Um, and we are the software that helps them generate those loans to originate them, to underwrite them, uh, and for their borrowers to repay on time money flows through our system. Um, so we are kind of the one-stop shop end-to-end -end platform for lenders to be able to run a fund uh, and, and run a, a pool of capital to lend out of. So, you know, the folks that we are working with are quite busy right now <laughs> with uh, everything going on with COVID-19. We're very proud and um, uh, it's our pleasure to be a part of this collaboration happening out of the NC Rural Center. Um, it's called the NC Rapid Recovery Program. There's a $140 million loan fund that um, uh, funds are granted by Golden Leaf Foundation, as well as uh, the General Assembly of the state. Um, and the, this money is being sent out as emergency loan funds for small businesses all over the state. We've literally touched every single county. We've processed more than, you know, 10,000 applications at this point. Um, all of that has kind of flown through um, our software, which has just been a, a ride over the last two months. Uh, just a really cool experience, uh, a tiring experience, but something that our team has really learned a lot from. We started, we had, four people on the team before COVID hit. We now have 10 people on the team and we're growing even more. Um, so this single opportunity has like really vaulted our name uh, in the stratosphere for a lot of different groups that are looking for cutting edge tech. Um, and we're, we're, uh, we're focused on delivering the best in class tech in the industry if we can. What was the problem that you were trying to solve originally with Lonewell? Cause you're, yeah, you know, you're coming right out of Crosscom uh, to to work on Lonewell. So, what is it maybe in your experience with Crosscom or outside of your daily work that you saw that led to the creation of of your business? Yeah, man. I you know we we originally started as a B to C business, so we were you know P to P loans between friends and family. Um, and the whole concept there was we were, my co-founder and I, Justin Strait, um, we were uh, beyond motivated and inspired. But like the story of Black Wall Street was something that we just felt like we wanted to live into. Um, we wanted to have a 
modern um, black Wall Street company that was a financial technology uh, company that uh, kind of took that that rode the coattails of uh, the NC Mutuals of the world and the Mechanic and Farmers Bank of the world, not just for story, but for uh, a continuation of what they built that, um, you know, is is spoken about in the past right now, right? It's spoken about as this kind of relic of Durham's history that um, we want to uh, we want to modernize and elevate and bring back to the forefront. So that was the inspiration. It was how do we how do we live into that legacy? The mission was always uh, communities of color have been divested from for too long. Uh, they have they have been uh, cut out of the wealth that has been built in this country. And quite frankly, they've built a lot of the wealth of this country without seeing the proceeds. And a lot of that, if you kind of trace it, uh, goes back to ownership, ownership of land, ownership of business and, and flow of money. Like who has access to capital, uh, on a personal level, but also to, to grow whatever you're working on. And so we just felt like the problem was that kind of combination of the two, the communities that we care about, that we live in, and, uh, and the means to wealth generation being uh, capital. And so if we could facilitate efficient flow of capital, we felt like we could tackle that problem and, and have a big impact on it. Um, and the the b2c model we we went after for uh, a good while about a year and a half and we uh had some success we just realized the economics of the business just didn't work for us uh and talking with folks like wilson lester at piedmont business capital um and jonathan brereton over at thread capital uh and different of these cdfis these lenders all over the state um we were originally thinking hey can we just partner with you guys and you send us you know, the folks that don't make the cut and then we can, you know, try to work with them and their friends and family to like get them the funding that they need. And after talking with them, uh, you know, I remember one individual in Carolina Small Business said to me, uh, Mark Royster said, well, the technology you just showed me is very interesting. Like we, we need that type of technology. And I said to myself, so maybe we've built just for the wrong customer." right? Like we're still in the same space and we're still doing the same, um, more or less the same thing. We help people make loans, um, but we're building for a different customer. And that's what we've been doing for about a year now. And it has been the best decision we could have ever made. A lot of startups call it a pivot and hesitate to call it a pivot. We are, we are uh, full sale, a pivot, and we're all about it. And it was the best thing that we could have done. Um, and so now we sell direct to these businesses that pay us an annual fee, uh, annual licensing fee for our software. And we're more of their technology partner um, than just a, a piece of tech that they're using. And so it allows us to be part of these stories and not just uh, the conduit. What do you think is the biggest, so you talked about how, uh, you know, people of color have been divested from for generations Yeah, with the changes in technology and sort of the, like, you know, there is unlimited access now to 
well, I shouldn't say unlimited, but you know, the internet is a pretty powerful tool. You can get on the internet, you can research anything, you can basically connect with whoever you want. Um, but there is still clearly a uh, dividing line between communities of color and their white counterparts. So what do you think is, uh, or, or some of the barriers still that are preventing more uh, people in our communities of color from building successful businesses? Yeah, man, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I'll take the easy road out um, and I'll focus on capital and capital access because that's, that's the thing that we're focused on more than anything else. I think you could throw in policy. I think you could sure. throw in real estate. I think you could throw in um, lots of things into that discussion. Um, but I do think capital access is a huge part. So let me let me just give a quick recap of what happened with PPP, because I think it's a great kind of microcosm of what problem exists. So COVID hits, uh, lots of small businesses are really struggling. Um, and the federal government decides they're going to do the CARES Act. So PPP money comes down. And what happens is the banks that what most people don't know about this is like the SBA does not just give you money. The SBA guarantees money. So what that means is the banks that that are providing these loans, they have to have the money in their coffers to actually be able to provide the loans. And so the only ones that are able to do that in droves and in, in billions of dollars are the biggest banks in the country, right? And so you're talking about the Bank of America's, the Wells Fargo's, the whatever. And what they said is, hey, there's so much uncertainty around this program. And if it's going to be forgiven or if it's going to be guaranteed or whatever, we're going to rely on those uh, borrowers that we already have, those existing relationships that we already have, because that's the lowest risk. Like if we were to take on a whole bunch of new customers that we have no idea uh, whether or not this program is going to be guaranteed, we, we could literally lose our shirt um, because of how much money we're talking about. And so Bank of America and all the rest went down to the business, to the businesses that they already had relationships with. And so just, you can see kind of my thought thread there, like those small businesses that are minority led that don't have that really greased relationship with the banker down the street um, that more or less use Wells Fargo's checking account for their you know business revenue. It's like, they, they were left out of that initial wave. And because they were left out of the initial wave, restrictions on that second wave were actually a lot higher and, and what was required of the business to kind of prove um, you know, their, their validity for the money was a lot higher. And so the people who needed the most actually had the higher, the more stringent rules, right? Um, and then finally, you see it trickle down to CDFIs and community lenders who are actually the boots on the ground bankers and folks that are in your community that are lending to the folks who need it most. So I, I bring all that up to say, I think we still have a huge problem in terms of it, it, it's not always the like unbanked, underbanked conversation. I literally think it's the access conversation where. Um, you know, minority businesses are just looking at smaller lines of credit, smaller, you know, loans themselves, or less access because of XYZ underwriting criteria. And a lot of that is like tenure, 
well, how do you get tenure if you <laughs> if you're not given the loan to get started, right? And so there's there's still some really um, egregious, you know, s- systemic issues with regards to our financial system that I think uh, we're just on full display, just in 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 full color with uh, the CARES Act. That I think, uh, to be frank, is such a shame that the LA Lakers are applying for the CARES Act money, right? Like. Um, yeah, I could go on and on about that, but, uh, I, I think that that highlighted to me, um, why the, the folks that we get to work with, why their work matters so much, uh, because there's a huge gap between that line of credit that you need to get to the next, you know, uh, location or to grow the next team or whatever it might be. It's just not as readily available, uh, for even for minority businesses that are growing and doing well. Zooming out a little bit on um, on not just loan well, but sort of like businesses right now during COVID, uh, pretty much everybody has been working from home the last few months. Um, and there's been a lot of talk around the shift in mindset around the idea of working from home, that a lot more teams are prepared to work from home indefinitely. And some have just sort of blown the doors open and said, we're just going to let people work from home forever if they want to. Um, how do you think, or first, like, sort of what are your thoughts on work from home versus being in an office? And two, how do you think that changes um, not only the way that we work, but, but maybe how it changes how teams are built and start to ask for money? You know, would, would, uh, would a particular investor feel any better or worse about a team that was, you know, dispersed across the country as opposed to rooted in one place? Um, yeah. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I'll bite off, uh, different chunks of it. So, uh, you know, I think the, the work from home movement that we're seeing in the tech scene, like, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all these huge, huge companies are basically saying, do what you want, um, which I think is a cool, a cool idea and concept. I'm really curious to see the fallout of it um, uh, better for, for good or for bad. Um, and I think uh, there's some, as a country, we, we deal with isolation issues and loneliness issues. And um, that's another like underlying pandemic that's happening in uh, in our world. And I only think this exacerbates it, to be honest. I, I, I don't know that it's frankly good for every single company to say that anyone on their team can work from home. I think it, uh, it can isolate people um, in, a, in an unhealthy way. Now, I think a lot's been said, especially on the Twitter waves of like how productive people are. And like, it was just so unexpected that you'd see a boost and blah, 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 blah. I think it would be a shame if companies are under the guise of like a flexible policy. They're really just seeing, oh, it doesn't cost us as much to like have a building uh, and we actually get more out of our workers. Um, I'd like to see some transparency around like the decisions that companies are making. Uh, for us personally at Lonewell, um, we've all been working from home and it's just been a, a safety thing and we're trying to stay, trying to stay safe. Lots of fathers, um, 
on the on the team and, and lots of parents. Um, for us, though, we really we desire to be in community, um, and so we're we're hunting office space right now um, at AU and trying to find a bigger space and uh, working with Adam and the team to, to figure out what that would look like. Um, and we want to be in the same place. And we we are actually pretty saddened by like I'm in the AU today and it's a little it's a little quiet. Uh, and it makes sense that it is. Um, but I'm we're Justin, my co-founder was saying the other day, I wonder when it'll be back. When any office space like this, this concept will be will be back to kind of full force uh, to the great benefits that it provides and like running into other founders and talking about the latest round or just shooting the breeze and playing basketball with you, you know, like um, that sense of community is just, is the thing that I miss the most as we've been building and scaling this business, but from home, right. It's just felt like it's in this uh, vacuum and, uh, and we're not able to engage as much as we'd like uh, with the surrounding community that, that helped us get to where we are. Right. right. Um, so. Do you think that the work from home movement will have any uh, will be any detriment to some of the work around diversity that uh, is sort of at the forefront of many conversations right now? You know, I worry that you know it's hard enough already for minority communities to uh, not only get jobs that they're uh, you know worthy of. Excuse the pun. Uh, but, but also to sort of show their, um, prove their worth within their workspace and be able to, again, climb that corporate ladder. And I wonder if there are some inherent biases that may also be exacerbated, uh, through, you know, the work from home situation that we're in, you know, I've, I've read things about, like different conversations uh, that, you know, maybe would be had anyway in person, but, you know, things cropping up in team Slack groups and, and other group chats, team group chats that are, uh, you know, microaggressions that are making it harder for, you know, if you stack that on top of being lonely because you're working from home, not being able to see people in your community, if you're more of a, a socialite, um, yeah, I wonder if that will have more of an impact on our communities of color. Yeah, I I um I hadn't heard that, but I um but I I could totally see the the truth and validity in what you're saying and what you're reading. Um I wonder though, I think I'm on the other side of the coin. Uh I feel like there's a huge opportunity here. Um whether or not it's taken is maybe another conversation, but there's a huge opportunity for this to be a, a massive like meritocracy movement or, or moment um, where it is way more about what you do and what you've done for me lately than it is about uh, what you look like in the boardroom or what you look like in that, um, in that team meeting or, um, or whatever it might be, like the underlying bias that happens um, so often in different rooms when you're the only or one of few uh you know minority faces and voices 
is like really hard to overcome. And I've been there in a corporate world. I've been there in kind of the small business side and it's, it's hard. And that's like, to be frank, that's like the reality of uh, the minority professional and the minority just in general. Like you're almost always, at least I feel this way, one of the few in the room. And um, in that reality, when I talk to some of my white brothers and sisters, it's like, oh, I never really even thought about that. Like what that would feel like to not see somebody that looks like me or that I can immediately like tell some stupid joke to, right? Or like have the easy like chit chat, right? I mean, when we just come from different worlds or even not so different worlds, but we look different, um, it just creates some um, inherent uh, bias and, and walls and difference um, that are sometimes pretty inescapable. And I just feel like, man, um, what a great moment we have for companies like a Google or a Twitter or a Facebook that have been pounded for their lack of diversity initiatives to, to now have a distributed workforce where they could literally hire anybody that met the criteria, right? Like if I were a DNI like vice president of any of these big tech companies or any company, regardless of technology or not, man, I think I'd be working hand in hand with like HR and ops to figure out how do we scale a workforce that looks different that is remote right now right um that seems like an amazing amazing opportunity for for everybody involved again uh, whether or not it happens uh is to be to be seen but um you know we we have folks from south america on our team we have folks from uh code the dream on our team we have folks who have sold companies uh to microsoft and linkedin we have folks who have uh, pitched billionaires on uh, nonprofit ideas and run banks all over the world. Like we, we really thrive with diversity and it's been researched and proven many, 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 many times. And it's just a no brainer. It's really the lack of will to do it. And, and I think if it wasn't as big of an issue to engraft this person into a team that looks so different from them on a day to day, water cooler, water cooler to water cooler, you know, standpoint, maybe it, maybe it progresses more, right? Maybe it, there's an entry point uh, for, for that to actually happen. All right. I feel like we could, we could go, we did even get into basketball and so many other topics <laughs> we could have gotten into. Um, but I'll get you out on this question. What is the most fun thing that you've done since, uh, since quarantine started? Oh, man. Could be like a book you read, movie you watched, you know, place you socially distanced, hung out. Mm. Yeah, man. For me, honestly, my life right now is this little girl. So, I mean, my my favorite thing was Father's Day. To be frank, I mean, not to be cheesy, but uh, I had a feeling just, you would say that. I mean, it just is my reality right now, right? Like she is our world and it's, uh, it's, it's incredible to see the, um, the opportunity that you have to shape somebody's life. Uh, like that, the fact that we're given that responsibility is kind of crazy. Um, to see on a day to day that influence actually happen or manifest is like even crazier. Um, 
and then to see like reciprocal action as they get older is uh is pretty fascinating so you know father's day where she's doing a whole bunch of new things like eating real food for the first time and like uh yeah i don't know man she's and any any parent would feel this way when it's so new and and uh and you've been cooped up in the house for so long uh but yeah man it, it it's it's meant a lot to us and it, it i just think about you know the people that helped raise me and uh i think there's a huge responsibility and um i accept it and and uh, i love being a part of it that's a great way to to get out of the show uh, thanks again for, for doing this with me. Uh, folks can go online uh, and search Lonewell and check out all the great work that Bernard and Justin and their team uh, are doing, especially during COVID. You can always support this show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash Buddy Ruski. Check that out. Uh, all the podcasts hit uh, all the places that you listen, Apple, Spotify, all that good stuff. So uh, tell a friend, spread the word. And, uh, and we'll be back next time. Thanks, Bernard, again for uh, being on the Buddy Risky Show. Thanks, Talk man. To you soon. It's a pleasure. Yep.